Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, The Island of Misfit Toys, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in December 2019. After you listen to the stories, stick around to listen to my conversation with our in-studio guest, Anne Bonney, a professional speaker, host of the Igniting Courage podcast, and author of a book called Get Over It, will be joining me to speak about the theme for our next show. In our first story, Karen Killian really wants to appreciate a Christmas gift she gets as a child. So you all know how every Christmas has an it toy, right? And it seems like when the, there's an it toy, every kid is clamoring to have it, or almost every kid, every kid that you seem to know. Well, in 1983, the it toy was a chubby-faced doll with soft yarn hair that was supposedly born in a cabbage patch. You guys remember these things? The Cabbage Patch Dolls. They were quite the rage. And by early November of that year, all the cool girls in my third grade class already had them. These were the doctor's kids and the orthodontist kids. You know who these kids were, right? And they were bringing them to school stuffed in their backpacks, and they'd gather in a pack at the corner of the playground during recess to play with the dolls. They let the rest of us, who were not quite so lucky, watch them play. But the understanding was that by January, we should all have our own dolls. Though, in the meantime, we could spend our resource, recess time admiring their dolls and discussing what kind of dolls we dreamed of having, as if we were discussing the dreams of our future children, what they would look like, and what, you know, what kind of hair they would have. I imagined having a green-haired doll with big, yellow, puffy ponytails. She would look a little bit like me, but she would have a really fancy name like Delilah Lorinda or Kylie Anne Marie. These were actual names of dolls that other girls in my class had. We third grade girls knew everything about Cabbage Patch dolls. Each one was unique, like all children themselves, and they were all designed by a man named Xavier Roberts. This is a sham, by the way. Google it. It's a pretty funny, interesting story. You knew it was a true Cabbage Patch doll, though, if Xavier Roberts had signed its butt. <laughs> now, in my house growing up, there was no Santa Claus. My mom had made that very clear from the time we were tiny tots. Santa was a lie. So I knew there was no fat man in a red suit who'd fly through the sky, slide down the chimney, and leave me a Cabbage Patch doll under the tree. My mom was an honest, pragmatic woman, and she just insisted she wasn't going to lie to her kids. I grew up knowing that Santa was a fraud, and I pretty much thought that any kid who believed in Santa was an idiot. In fact, <laughs> I did tell a few of the naval kids that they were idiots. Their parents didn't like that very much, but whatever. Somebody had to set them straight. <laughs> so anyhow, I always knew that any presents that I would get for Christmas would have to come from my family. But that didn't keep me from dreaming or begging. I wanted a Cabbage Patch doll so badly, even if it wasn't that one I dreamed about with her cute yellow ponytails just like my own. I'd even take one of the ugly boy dolls with the shaggy hair. I just had to have a Cabbage Patch doll. 
And I am certain, especially now that I've raised two third graders, girls of my own, that I probably talked about it incessantly. I come from a family of pragmatic Midwesterners who are more likely to sponsor a refugee family than to buy the new IT toy. But these, even if they had wanted to get it to me for me, the stalls were notoriously hard to get. Parents had started punching each other out in big box stores all over the country just to get one of the few Cabbage Patch dolls on the shelf. There are actually business school um, case studies written about this now, and if you Google it, it's called the Cabbage Patch Riots, <laughs> which adds a whole other level of, is it news? Is it fake news? I don't even know. I, I, but I had seen all about this. I learned about it on the 6 o'clock news. Still, I went to bed every night dreaming about that Cabbage Patch doll, and by the time Christmas Eve came around, I could barely sleep. I was so excited to hold this soft, cuddly doll of my own in my arms. So imagine my excitement when I woke up on Christmas morning and there was this giant box under the Christmas tree with my name on it that had not been there the night before. In my family, we take turns opening presents. We have to go around in a circle, starting with the youngest, while everybody oohs and ahs at the newest acquisition. Um, and so my little brother, Kendall, got to go first. I have no idea what he wanted, but I'm sure he was delighted because he was just delighted by everything. Um, but eventually my turn came and I grabbed that big box, slid my fingers under the wrapping taper and gently tugged it off. And inside was a brown cardboard box. Now I knew Cabbage Patch dolls came in a light, pale yellow cardboard box with plastic like in the front so you could see their face. But whatever, I opened it up. And when I opened it, there they were, those yellow yarn pigtails I had dreamed of. I reached in and pulled out the doll, and the body was the right safe, shape, and soft, chubby fabric, made out of fabric. I could squeeze it. And I glanced up at my mom. She was staring at me with this eager look on her face, like, you know, just so excited to see what I thought. But something was off. I mean, if I squinted, the doll looked like a Cabbage Patch doll. But there was something goofy about the face. Instead of those cute round nose with these round nubby nostrils that kind of looked like balls of bread dough that had been stuck right there, right in the middle of her face, above her mouth, this doll had a sharp little nose with these angled plastic pieces hanging out of the corners that kind of looked just like, I don't know, boogers. Do you like it? My mom was so eager. I was a well-trained daughter. I couldn't dare tell her what I thought. Sh -sh sure, I said. What, so what are you going to name her? And that's when I knew. Now, Cabbage Patch Dolls came with our Topshin certificates, right? They already had their fancy names listed on them, names like Delilah Lorinda and Kaylee Ann Marie. My doll had a lacy yellow dress and matching lacy yellow bloomers, and I pulled back the waistband and I looked at the butt. Sure enough, no signature. It was all I could do not to cry. My doll was fake. Now, over the rest of that Christmas day, which seemed to drag out forever, I learned more about where that doll had come from. My mother had worked together with a whole team of my family to get me this gift that I thought they all thought was exactly what I wanted so badly. My Aunt Marie, who was one of my dad's five sisters, had sewn the doll herself using a kit you could get at the fabric store in 1983. And my grandma, Betty, my mom's mom, had spent weeks hand sewing me a huge bag of clothes for my doll. I can just imagine all the late night phone calls that had happened to set this up, 
All the hours that these women who I knew loved me must have labored to craft this toy for me, dreaming of my delight. In fact, I've done it myself. How many dark December nights have I stayed up all night making things for my kids, hoping, dreaming, just praying that they would smile and be excited when they saw them? All we want is their delight. But I wasn't delighted. I was embarrassed. I knew there was no way I could bring that doll to school in my backpack. In fact, I hid her in my closet under my stuffed animals. And when school started up again that January, I took up dodgeball. And I started playing with the boys every day just so I could avoid the girls and their Cabbage Patch dolls. I got really, really good at dodgeball. It was bigger than most of the boys still, so it was all good. But I still would play, take her out every once in a while and dress and undress her in all the cute clothes my grandma had made, only when my door was shut, though, and nobody else would see, because I was ashamed of her. This wasn't the doll I'd wanted, and I was disappointed, but I also knew that my mom was disappointed in me. Fast forward a few decades. You know, my parents will get divorced. My mom remarries and remarries again. And all of our childhood toys ended up in garbage bags in one of my mom's garages in rural Minnesota. Every toy I'd ever loved and cared for was eaten by rodents. Except for some reason, that stupid, fake <laughs> cabbage patch doll. Because my mother had brought it into her house when she remarried and stuck it on a tiny little uh, rocking chair that had belonged to my older brother who was, of course, being the first bone, the favorite child. Now, I have two daughters of my own, and when my oldest daughter was in kindergarten, all she wanted was a doll, an American Girl doll. For reference, Cabbage Patch costed $25 at Kmart. <laughs> an American Girl doll was 130 bucks. And the year my older daughter was in kindergarten, her dad lost his job on my birthday on November 16th, and I went back to waiting tables but man, oh man, oh man, was I going to make sure she got Josephina for Christmas, right? Because like, the, the fake doll from Target was not going to cut it in my book. She was getting that doll. I went through my house and I sold off everything I could find on Craigslist just to buy that stupid doll. And of course, she was delighted on Christmas morning, absolutely thrilled. She got her Josephina doll. I'll always wonder, though, did I make a mistake? Could she have learned more if she'd never gotten the one thing she pined for? But it isn't really about the doll, right? It's about the act of love. It's about showing somebody that we really care for them when we give them a gift. This is what I tell myself. And if I ever forget that, that stupid, fake-ass Cabbage Patch doll with the boogery nose is still sitting in the family room at my mom's house to remind me. Thank you. In the next story, Rob Ford learns that being a mall Santa is not all fun and ho-ho-hos. So long, long before I uh, began to look like Santa, uh, I, I, try, <laughs> I tried to do his job. So uh, by that I mean in, in uh, 1987 we had moved to Elk Rapids and uh, uh, I had two little kids. Uh, one was maybe almost three, one was a little over a year. They had no idea who Santa was, but there was an ad in the paper for a Santa Claus at Logan's Landing, which was at the time a bustling, bustling shopping center. 
<laughs> anyway, so I, I, you know, here I am, I'm 30 years old, and I went in there, and I said, hey, I'll do that Santa gig. You know, I, I, I like Santa, I had kids, and, you know, and then the guy kind of looked at me like, kind of young to be Santa. And I said, well, okay. He said, well, if no one else comes along, then you've got the job. <laughs> and, and it turned out nobody else came along <laughs> for, for a very good reason that I will come to. Anyway, so I was all excited, and uh, uh, Black Friday, I don't even know if Black Friday was a term in 1987, but anyway, Black Day after Thanksgiving, I got up, and I drove into Logan's Landing, and I went into the little room, and I put on the, the big red pants and the big red jacket and those plastic spats over my shoes and the polyester beard, and this was in the late 80s. It was still pretty common for Santa Clauses to have the fake stuff on and the big hat, and I just... You can't put it on without starting to get hot. and just get hot, hot, hot. Anyway, uh, so I get out there, and I've got boxes of candy canes, and I, uh, I'm all ready. So right away, you know, from 10, to 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. was the Black Friday event at the bustling Logan's Landing Shopping Center. <laughs> so anyway, uh, right away, kids, parents start coming in, and I'm handing out Christmas cards. Uh, candy canes and I'm listening to their wishes and they, they leave and the worst thing happens. The parents start coming back in and they say, where's that other guy? Is that other guy here still? Is that other guy at a different store? I'm like, other guy, other guy, other guy. So it clicked not too long into that. Back, if you were in Traverse City back in the 80s, there was a guy, he was about that tall. He had his own beard, wire rim glasses, his own clothes, and he had boots. He looked like Santa, and he looked like he would be a reindeer farmer most of the year <laughs> when he wasn't making toys and, and that whole real Santa thing. And that was the guy that I was following. So it was awful. The whole first day, the whole, the whole first weekend, people after people, they'd come in and they'd get their candy cane. And the kids would go out. The parents would come back. When's that other guy? When's the other guy? Where's the other guy? And I found out that he had gotten sick and a stroke or something. Anyway, he was a really old guy. So anyway, um, by Tuesday, uh, word had traveled fast. There wasn't, there wasn't the internet, of course, but word still traveled fast around Traverse City. And so then it became very quiet. That very first day, you know, there were people, but it was just awful. And the worst one was, uh, I, was I could look down a hallway and these people came around the corner and their parents were leading the pack. And it's like mom and dad became human shields. Like, and, and, and brushed the kids back and the kids went back and dad took them into I don't even know what kind of store was at Logan's Landing at the time. Anyway, mom came in and said, Where's, is, are you just here filling in for that other guy? And I like, Come on, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. <laughs> and anyway, I sat there for, for the next, from, the, from like Tuesday until Christmas Eve, reading magazines and reading books and counting windows and counting wood slats on the wall. I just remember it was just the most boring, disgusting thing I had ever done. It was just, oh man, are you kidding me? I was so excited to be Santa and it turned out to be a flop. Anyway, Christmas Eve did come. It took forever to get there, but it did 
get there in 1987, we had Christmas Eve. The highlight was a guy named Dave Fortin from TV 7 and 4 came out and shot his annual Santa thing with, with me, this wrong guy doing the thing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I learned two things. Two things. Uh, first, uh, I, still, uh, I still can't lie to kids. I mean, the Santa thing, you're lying. You're lying about, you know, everything. <laughs> you, it's, a, it's one piled up lie, right? <clears throat> I, I find it today, 30 years later, just as amusing to explain reality to a kid as that. <clears throat> Second thing, as you go through life, you will never want to be the guy that follows the guy, <laughs> right? Nobody remembers who broadcast Tiger Games after Ernie Harwell retired. You don't want to be the guy after the really popular minister retires. You don't want to be the guy after the real cool teacher leaves town. You want to follow the buffoon, the fool of a failure. <laughs> Which is what the guy at Logan's Landing did the next year. So, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Alex Trebek is going to retire from Jeopardy. I'm not going to replace him. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Next, Tim Keenan is pretty sure he isn't being paranoid that he's being followed at an amusement park. So I'm, I li I'm living in Clearwater, Florida, and I just, I'm like two years out of Vietnam, and um, I'm living down there working, and my cousin just got out of Vietnam, and he came, uh, before he even went home, he came down to visit me, and because we shared the same kind of experiences. So, but I had, so I had these, I got these tickets, I scored these tickets to uh, Richie Havens at uh, Bush Gardens, and Bush Gardens, has anyone ever been to Bush Gardens before? It's a gigantic place, you know, it's like there's all kinds of wild animals and there's trains and stuff like that. Anyway, there's a little amphitheater there at uh, Bush Gardens and it's, um, it's just a quaint little place. It seats about 300 people and there's a little stream running through it and stages right there. It's really cool. Couldn't wait. So before we went, I rolled up a big doobie. Okay. You got it? Okay, good. And um, I put it in my pocket, and away we went. And I said, let's smoke. We'll smoke this dude. We'll go around. Do, we'll look all, at all the animals and shit. And, and by the way, at Bush Gardens, you can drink beer there, too. They, they have little, because Bush owns it, so there's little cups of beer at each stop. You could go and you could have a beer. So we went around, and um, so these, there's a train that goes around. It's kind of like the train, a little bit bigger than the train that used to be at Clinch Park down here. And uh, so we were hanging out, just having a good time, and there was these little, and I don't even know what they're, what we call, you know, like a, at Disney World, like, like Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and Pluto. What are those called, those characters? Anyone know? You know what, but you know what I'm talking about? Well, there's these little, there were these owls. It, like, like, they have big heads, about this big, they're about that big. Big heads, big eyes. 
and um, they were frolicking around. And um, so we were doing our thing, but it seemed like every, when we get on the train, and it seemed like everywhere we went, these owls were like 50 meters away. <laughs> and uh, finally, I said to my cousin, I said, hey, Rod, um, I think those owls are following us. <laughs> you know, he said, oh, bullshit, man, come on. And you're being paranoid. And uh, so I'm not being paranoid, man. I think they, okay, so let's, let's, um, let's get on the next train. We'll get on it, and let's see if they don't get off where we get off. So we hung out for a bit, looking at the animals and stuff, and we get on the next train, take off. Didn't, weren't even paying attention to the owls. Get off, we went over by the, wherever the snakes were or whatever, or the alligators or whatever, and looked around, and <clears throat> I said, Rod, there's the owls right there, man. <laughs> and they're, you know, they're not talking, they're just moving around, and... And they find kids, and they play with kids, but they don't keep their eye off us for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. So, um, so anyway, after we do this a couple times, my cousin's now convinced these owls are, in fact, following us. And again, I don't know why. So now it's getting close to the time of Richie Havens, and we got to smoke the dube. And the owls are getting in my way here. I'm getting annoyed. <laughs> So I said, okay, here's the plan here. Let's get on the last, the caboose of the train in the back, in the way back. So there's no way they can be behind, behind us. We'll go one stop up and then get off and they'll, there they go, they're gone. Let's do that. He said, okay, good idea. So we get on the train, get, get in the back. There's no place to sit behind us, nope. But there is a place to stand and then there's a railing in back. So we sit in the back there, and the owls are looking around like they don't know what to do, and, and they, get on, they end up getting on the train, and they end up flapping their little wings and coming and standing and getting right behind us. They're right behind us, right there, right there. And I'm looking at my cousin, okay, I'm getting pissed off here now. So finally I just I said, okay, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them what's going on here. See this? This is a doobie, this is a joint. We're gonna smoke this and we're gonna go to see Richie Havens and you're annoying us. Will you get off and give us some privacy? And they started flapping their little wings <laughs> like this and stuff and I go, do you want some of this? <laughs> and they shook their big heads like, like this. And I go, oh my God. I, my cousin's laughing so hard, it was pretty good for him. He just got out of Vietnam, and he had a bad time there. This was great for him. But anyway, so I lit the joint up and passed it to my cousin. He took a hit, and I go, hold it here. How are you going to, how are you going to do this? And the owl moved really close to me and said, give me a shotgun in the eye. <laughs> And uh, I go, oh my God. What I was gonna tell, a long time ago I was gonna tell you, before this story started, the odds on this happening to anyone or your chance of winning the lottery are way better. I got these owls. So I turn the doobie around, put it in my mouth, and I, and I came up to the eye 
the big eye. And I, it came forward, and I looked, and here's what I could see. So I blew a billow of smoke into the, into the eye, and then flapped the wings a little bit. And then the, that all moved. They changed places, and I go, okay. And then I, so I moved closer, and there, there was another. And I blew it in there. And, uh, and these owls were just so happy. And I, I, to tell you the truth, I have no idea. Now, don't, you're going to ask me this question. I don't know why they signal me out. I mean, <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> my cousin had short hair. My hair was a little bit long, but do I, I don't look like I smoke. I, I, we, at my cousin, at, at, I, didn't, I didn't tell you this. I, we thought, are they drug-sniffing owls? <laughs> we thought about that. Anyway, after the next stop, those owls jumped off the train. They looked at us. They, they flapped their wings, and away they went, frolicking into the sunset. And my cousin and I went to the Richie Havens place and uh, got off, found a spot, smoked the rest of the dube, went and saw it in the second row, watched Richie Havens. It was an awesome day. Thank you. <laughs> Next up, Laura Gornicki discovers that her expectations for teaching in India are not being met. I was preparing to go to India, and I was packing this enormous, big, um, black suitcase, and I just put a few clothing items in there. Um, 22 years later, I still remember every article of clothing I took because the bulk of that big black suitcase was school supplies, markers, stickers, alphabet banners, math posters. I jammed in deflated kickballs, a small air pump, uh, bubble wands, and jump ropes and small toys. Along with another woman, I'd been selected to take part in a fellowship to spend my senior year of college in a village as a guest teacher. I was so excited. I was an education major. I was ready to teach, to inspire. I was ready. But then when the two of us arrived, we realized that we were not ready, that nothing could have possibly prepared us for that culture shock. I'd never felt like more of an outsider in my life, and I was a person who always tried to fit in um, in my adolescence. Everywhere we walked, people unabashedly stared at us and screamed, Madama Americana, and they were, they were elbowing their, their peers. Children would touch our toes. Some children would cry when they looked at us because they'd never seen white skin. They'd never even seen a television or white skin on a magazine. Chickens and pineapples and strangers would sit on me on public buses. <laughs> And my entire digestive system was on fire. I wish I wouldn't have brought all those toys and threw some peanut butter in there or something in my suitcase. And also, I had always, I had never, excuse me, I'd never been squeamish about bugs, but the little house that my companion and I shared was just crawling with ants and um, giant spiders and cockroaches. And I was in the jungle. The cockroaches are like that big. Every day was a challenge, and 
we stuck out wherever we went. And when I went to bed at night, I would just lie down in my bed underneath the mosquito netting and the sweltering heat, and tears would roll down my cheeks, and I just wanted to go home. We had a couple of weeks to get settled in this village before we began uh, the school year. I was so excited to get into that classroom, and I was hopeful that the education, that the learner learning would be our common denominator. I'd always bawled over those amazing movies about these inspiring teachers and books, and you know the Reader's Digest features about teachers who changed kids' lives? And now here I was, a village, underdeveloped country, and it seemed like maybe this, this like had the potential to be a really good story. But on the first day of school, I stood in front of about 25 kindergartners. They were like adorable little soldiers. They were in their tiny school uniforms, and I had their rapt attention. They were all silent. They were looking straight at me. These are five-year-olds. In the United States, you don't get audiences like that. <laughs> I had, I had had seven-year-olds drop the F-bomb and hitting each other in class. Not these kids. I had chalk, and I had a chalkboard at the front of the classroom, and each student, they sat on their benches, and they each had a little tiny chalkboard and a piece of chalk. And I went to the front of the board, and I drew a picture of a body, and I labeled some body parts, and then I proceeded to try to teach them head, shoulders, knees, and toes. They could not control their laughter. They laughed uproariously. They jumped up and down on their little benches like jumping beans. They, they slammed their little slates down on the benches, and they were going crazy. I had no idea what to do. Fortunately, a small woman, Talisi Bai, with a big bamboo stick, rushed into the classroom again, banging on things all over the place. And the students immediately became little soldiers again. And I watched, and she took over the class from there. I was humiliated, and she, she would write a letter on the board, and then she would say the letter, and they'd all repeat in unison the letter, and then they would write the letter on their boards, and she would circulate to each of them and critique their letters, and this boring routine continued for the rest of the class period. After that kindergarten disaster, I just spent some time observing other teachers playing with the students during recess, getting to know other people at the school. I tried to think of ways I could stay somewhat true to my, like, more what I thought were progressive methods. Well, they were <laughs> more progressive than what they were doing. My methods of education. So I decided to give it another shot with seventh graders. I didn't want to write things on the chalkboard and have them copy them down. And I thought older students would appreciate the things um, that I would have to say, appreciate a break from lecture. And some of the kids had very excellent English. Several were fluent. And I planned a geography lesson. I don't remember exactly what I talked about, but I know I was up at the front and I was started out with a lecture format, writing things down. The students all wrote things on their little slates. And then I gave them some, some instructions, prompted them to work in small groups, and their faces froze. They refused to go get the markers. They refused to turn around on their little benches. They would not listen to me. And after repeated prompts, finally one girl said to me bashfully, I miss, I cannot work with the boys. And the other kids breathed out this sigh of relief and they said they too could not work with the opposite gender. 
They didn't want to get out of their seats or get the markers. They wanted me to stand at the front of the room, lecture while they wrote on their little slates. So this experience looked nothing like I had anticipated it would. This was nothing like Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society with all these revolutionary tactics. My teaching at Mothin Mopoli Memorial Public School in Theodico was not what I'd imagined because of these deeply held cultural beliefs, but actually, I ended up kind of liking it. I carried a bamboo stick around myself. I didn't hit the kids, but I did a couple of times wrap them on a table to get their attention. And, and I, I hate to say that, but I abandoned my way of doing things. And it was a whole lot easier than cutting out, you know, coconut trees and stuff on paper and thinking of creative lessons. I abandoned all my notions of what the experience should entail, and instead I just tried to connect with the people. I tried to connect with others. I tried to be useful. I would say one of the days I was most useful was the day I heard this raucous commotion in the teacher's lounge, and I ran in, and I worked myself into a huddle, and there was a little boy, a small boy, Srideep, that had a ring stuck on his finger. And everybody was screaming, and they were pulling, and Sridip's hand was getting bigger, and, and he was crying, and um, they couldn't get the ring off. Two teachers held him horizontally <laughs> across their bodies, and a third person pulled. Um, so I was useful in that situation. I got some cool water. There was no ice because the intermittent electricity wouldn't freeze water. Um, but I put his hand in some cool water and put some lotion on that ring calmed him down, and it slid off. So there was the magic, not like Robin Williams' teaching moment, but everybody was amazed. They thought I was a, a genius. <laughs> their, their first aid skills were um, a little rudimentary. I remember a story of, about somebody choking on an egg and everybody saying that, that it was his time to go and the gods were willing it so. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. And everybody was nodding their heads in agreement. And I said, well, you know, you just have to. And I'm <laughs> talking to them about how they could have prevented this. And I was an American Red Cross first aid and CPR instructor. And so I thought, I'll do a first aid class with the teachers. Seems like they could benefit from some basic first aid. <laughs> um, and they were grateful. And they listened intently. And I loved those sessions together. And I loved the time with the students. I ended up teaching them English using much different methods than I'd anticipated. I gave them stickers on the playground. I blew bubbles with them. They'd never seen such behavior in an adult. They taught me hopscotch. They taught me not to stand under the coconut trees. <laughs> I jumped on their bus routes home just for fun. Their families helped me buy things at market which was a win-win because they learned English and I didn't get ripped off on my rice and my tapioca root. <laughs> I played kickball with the boys. And I just have to say that frequently there, people would talk about my size. And I know I have a few extra pounds, but I was a size 8 or 10 when I was in India, you know, 150 pounds. And they would always say, Miss, you have too much fat to run. And, and then I'd hit the hell out of, you know, a ball. And they, they couldn't believe it. And there was a track meet. And I won because I had these Nike tennis shoes. And they were all in flip-flops or barefoot. And 
they, they were amazed. So I played kickball with the boys. I jumped rope with the girls. I taught them variations of tag. Eventually, they did grow to learn to love silly songs like Head and Shoulders, Knees and Toes. My story was definitely not like one of those inspiring teaching movies. Despite this, I realized that the experience was a success. We learned from and with each other, and we just celebrated our shared humanity. And I will never forget riding out of the village on my last day, seeing it all rush by me out the windows. And tears, <laughs> this time, were rolling down my cheeks. But I did not. They were not there because I wanted to go home. They, we, they were there because I realized that I had find a, found a new home, and I didn't want to leave. Thank you. In the next story, Skylar Fort comes to terms with being raised in a cult. Thank you. I was born and raised in a cult. I wish that were a joke. And yes, I lived on a commune, or rather a compound that was owned by the organization, but I also lived a good chunk of my life in the secular world while just adhering to the rigid doctrine. My religious differences were not often obvious to others as there were no weird outfits and we still celebrated our birthdays. <laughs> Holidays like Christmas and Halloween included candy and presents, but each celebration carried with it the weight of heavy doctrine. These were the times to really focus on inculcation and further the us versus them mentality. Instead of Merry Christmas, our greeting was Happy Household Holiday. And while you were getting into the Christmas spirit, I was attending meetings focused on debunking the fact that Jesus was born on December 25th. It's actually September 11th, 3 BC, if you're wondering. <laughs> and emphasizing the pagan, i.e. devilish origin of everything from the tree to the church bells. Because 99% of the world had it wrong, and we were the called out few who lived in the light and true understanding. For me, this might go without saying at this point, uh, life was lived under a waterfall of judgment, shame, and fear. I avoided sexual situations as a teen because I thought it would open myself up to the wrath of the adversary, the devil. And if I had sex, it would result immediately in my partner getting pregnant and me contracting AIDS simultaneously. The founding president was of German descent and often wove in a hatred of Jews to his teachings. Our ministry bookstore even sold anti-Semitic books outlining how the Holocaust was a myth. Homosexuality was a symptom of devil spirit possession, but abortion was not considered murder, which was very convenient since there was a long history of sexual abuse and exploitation from clergy and other men in power. In hindsight, my heart definitely knew that something was off. When my family moved into the secular community to spread the word, I ended up in a new public school and reading some excerpts from the diary of Anne Frank. That was interesting to me because I had remembered some adults talking about that book before and how it was a story that some Jews had made up for sympathy. When I brought it to my father's attention that I was reading some excerpts from that book, he's, he looked at me a little concerned and said sternly, 
the Holocaust never happened, and if it did, it's been grossly over-exaggerated. Then, a few years later, it came out that my cousin was gay. He was a teen and ready to start dating other boys. So, a group of senior leaders gathered to cast out the devil spirits. And there was an ample amount of praying and Bible thumping. And I straddled a line in my head because I believed the doctrine, of course, but wasn't surprised my cousin was gay because that was clear to him, to me, and everyone else who loved him from a very early age. I may have questioned things or not fully bought in at times, but it really wasn't until I was 27 years old that I began to step away. And it took that long because I didn't know. That was literally the only life I had ever known. And of course, my parents and ministry leaders had even directly outlined and told me, this is not a cult. Because there was a mass exodus from the organization in the mid-90s after uh, mass accusations of sexual misconduct and financial exploitation. So it became part of the very routine preaching, this is not a cult. To my mother, the C word is cult. <laughs> and it triggers major defenses in conversation still to this day. My transition didn't occur with a single aha moment either. It was clear to me that I hadn't been happy despite having reached all the general milestones in life, including a healthy, maybe not mentally, um, happy family and financial success, but I still didn't understand why. I thought I just hated my job and didn't like living in the city anymore. In the cult, I'd been taught that if I was ever having a hard time, I should give more. So I gave, and I gave, and gave, and gave, to the point that I was totally burned out and was not seeing the rewards in service to God or to others. So my wife and I decided to move to Traverse City in time, just in time for my oldest daughter to start kindergarten. And my wife had lived in Traverse City the first few years of her life, and we were still connected to the area through her grandfather. And this seemed like a great place to raise a young family and start a business I could manage on my terms. But moving to TC opened a portal to the past. Being here inspired my spouse to look more deeply into her family history. See, her father had committed suicide when she was very young. And her family was also involved in the same organization. So his death had been framed as selfish, in which he had opened himself up to devil spirit possession and the devil took him out. His life before death was essentially ignored and she had little to know him by. So she began to press the extended family and friends uh, for more details and background. She reached out to a writer who had actually interviewed her father shortly before his death about the Bible fellowship he hosted in his home. She even corresponded with some ex-leaders from the ministry. Here's the story we were told. Her father had provided room and board for a clergyman assigned to lead the area. And while her, fa her father went to work each day, that clergyman was home with her mother. And the clergyman used his position of power to seduce her. And that betrayal, the betrayal her father felt from his spouse, from his clergy, and from the ministry, 
that he had fully devoted his service and belief system to triggered him to literally break his own heart with a bullet. For the first time in my life, an accusation hit close to home. I could no longer frame them as just accusations. I, at this point, believed this story to be true. And if that were true, then thousands of other accusations against the organization that I grew up in were also true, or at least could be. Any remnant of faith that remained for me at that point shattered. So I drank about it. I chose my beer based on the highest ABV, and I drank whiskey from the bottle. <laughs> but waking up each morning in a cold sweat as, that, as my body sobered up, was not where I needed to be either. Clearly, I needed a lot of therapy, right? Unfortunately, therapy was something I had been conditioned to neither trust uh, nor value. I pulled myself off the path to alcoholism by focusing on diet and exercise, and I put a little effort into making friends. But Colt Schuyler was a bit of a judgmental dick, so I didn't gain a lot of traction. <laughs> In that, in that department. And the doctors uh, who prescribed medications to fight off depression and anxiety didn't get me quite there either. But thankfully, eventually, I did surrender to therapy. And seeing my therapist is when I realized I was pretty fucked up. <laughs> there was an awful lot to deal with, to deprogram, to understand, and to reframe. But my, my vision slowly changed and things started to make sense. I found, about, found out about this thing called a sense of self, this idea that I didn't have to be intensely driven to serve others all the time. My full time it didn't have to be my full-time occupation to suffer, to suffer for others, which may seem like simple stuff, but mind-blowing if you've only lived a life of service. My work in therapy let me, led me out of the cult and that personal growth eventually led me out of a marriage that was rooted in the dysfunction of my previous reality. It led me to be a more fully developed human being, a person who can respect a theological conversation without judgment, but also give time to consider how I feel, because how I feel matters. And when I feel, I'm learning, but my heart is often ahead of my mind. Now I know to give these feelings some consideration. So now I've reconciled with my family of origin. I feel genuine love for and from my parents. I still drink and exercise, but with a bit more balance. I'm a loving, devoted, and active father. I have great friends to whom I'm a dick a lot less frequently. <laughs> and one of my very best friends is even Jewish. Thank you. And in our last story, an act of ethics leads to an act of kindness for Heather Hudson's family. It was Christmas morning, 1987. I was 12. My brother Donnie was nine. Timmy was two, and mom was seven months pregnant. I was hoping for a sister, but it would probably be another brother. I guess that would be okay too. 
The three of us did our Christmas morning ritual of sitting on the bottom of the stairs, singing Christmas carols as loud as we could to wake our parents, whose bedroom was on the other side of the house. We weren't allowed to go to their room because we would have to pass through the living room where the Christmas tree was, and our parents didn't want us to see it without them because they loved watching our reactions. So we sang and sang until they came into the kitchen to make their coffee. We excitedly waited for them as we dug through our stockings and compared what Santa had brought us. Santa always left our stockings next to our bed, so it was the first thing we saw when we woke up. I always thought that was really convenient as it kept us from going into the living room before our parents were ready. It was like they planned it or something. Finally, mom and dad had their coffee in hand and they let us peek around the corner. This was always one of my favorite parts. Turning the corner in the kitchen and seeing our beautiful multicolored Christmas tree illuminating all of our presents. We excitedly gathered around the tree awaiting our turn. We got the usual not super exciting practical presents first like socks and underwear and some other article of clothing. Finally, Mom hands me a bigger present and watches me, hopefully. I open it. It's an older style plastic Barbie case. Hmm, that's really interesting. I think to myself, I open it up and there are a bunch of Barbie clothes in it. There aren't new clothes though. If you ever have had a Barbie, you know that once you take out the new outfits out of the package, they never quite look the same and they can be really hard to put on. These clothes were also in a 70s style, in brown and orange variety with puffy sleeves and and shirts and bell-bottom pants. I picked up the doll that was inside. She was the oddest Barbie I had ever seen, (laughs) probably because she wasn't actually a Barbie. She had an edge to her. She reminded me of the Wilson sisters from the band Heart, Her hair was black on top and blonde underneath, and she had makeup, and and she looked like she wouldn't take crap from anybody. (laughs) The top of her head was actually swiveled, so you could spin her hair around and flip it to make her blonde. I swiveled the top of her head to see how she would look as a blonde, but the blonde wouldn't actually lay flat, it just kind of stuck straight up. If I wanted her to be blonde, I guess I would have to find some way to tie it down. There was a lot of stuff in that Barbie case, including some other dolls, not in their original clothing. I was confused. I looked up at my mom, who was watching me. Who uh, gave me this? I said, trying to sound grateful. She sat up a little straighter and said, remember a few weeks back, when your dad and I picked you guys up from school and we went to the tree farm? I nodded. I did remember that day. It was unusual for both my parents to pick us up from school. They picked us up and said, we're going to go pick out a tree. We were really excited. Then they explained that earlier that day, dad was driving behind a car and something flew off of it and landed on the side of the road. Dad pulled over and discovered it was a purse. He picked up all the items, including a large roll of cash. And took, it off and, and took off down the road to see if he could find the car. He wasn't able to catch up to it, but he looked through the purse and found the address and the woman's license. He went over to the house, but she wasn't home. 
While he was there, he noticed that it was a Christmas tree farm. He didn't want to just leave the perch on, purse on the porch, so he went home and told my mom what had happened. They decided they would head back over later that night with, and get us and, take, and get a tree when they returned the purse. My parents took this opportunity to use it as a teachable moment for us, showing us that if you find something that doesn't belong to you and you, you can find the owner, then you should do the right thing and return it. My mom cleared her throat again and began, as you know, your dad has been laid off for a while and money has been really tight. I did know this. My dad was a millwright and they were often laid off between jobs. She continued, we weren't sure we were even going to be able to have a nice Christmas this year. That day your dad found that purse. Well, we would be lying if we said we weren't tempted to keep that money, but we knew that it wasn't ours to keep. We were hopeful that they would give us a discount on a tree. I had our last $20 in my wallet. It was all the money we had for the next week and a half until your dad's unemployment check came in. We, we knocked on the door and a woman answered. Dad handed her the purse and said he saw it fly off the car. He picked up everything he could and everything he could find and tried to and tried to catch her, but she was gone. He explained that he tried her at home too, but she wasn't there, so he decided to try again later. She took the purse and opened it up. There on top was the roll of money, and she just started crying. She looked at the money, and then she looked at us and said, this is actually my parents' house. My son and I are in the process of moving back here. On opening day of deer season this year, my husband died in a hunting accident. Thank you so much for bringing this back to me. Mom went on with tears in her eyes. She said, we gave our condolences and looked at each other, knowing we definitely did the right thing. The woman tried to offer us money, but we refused. And she said, we brought our kids and we plan to get a tree. And she replied, you can have any tree you want for free. We thanked her and got you kids out of the car and introduced you to her and then picked out our tree. I wrote her a letter thanking her for the tree. I let her know that her gift was, uh, the gift of the tree was a blessing and an answer to prayer. I mentioned that your dad had been laid off and we weren't sure we could afford a tree this year and we were so grateful for her gifting us the tree. As it turns out, her dad was a member of the Lions Club. When she told him about the letter, they decided to sign up our family to receive gifts. She must have had a general idea of your ages since she met you. So last night, there was a knock at the door. When we got to the door, they were already gone, but there was a box of food and gifts for you kids and also for me and your dad. I know that this isn't a new toy, but it is a gift from a stranger that wanted you to have something to open. It was someone else doing what they could to help another family have a good Christmas. Now we both had tears rolling down our cheeks. I went to my mom and gave her a big hug. I knew it took a lot for her to admit they didn't have money to spend on us and to accept these gifts from strangers. I told her it was a great gift and I actually meant it. It was by far the most impactful gift I've ever received. It was a symbol of my parents' character, doing the right thing, even though no one was watching. A symbol of the generosity of strangers, giving what they can to help others. It is the gift that has encouraged me over the years 
to drop money in the Salvation Army bucket, to donate to Toys for Tots, to shop for names on angel trees, adopt families, and monthly support two kids in Africa. I never took Christmas for granted after that. I learned that people who care and give of themselves are the greatest gift we can ever receive, whether they are friends, family, or strangers. I feel so blessed to have learned this lesson at such a young age so I could have the opportunity to pay their generosity forward. From my family to yours, happy Hanukkah, happy holidays, and Merry Christmas. So as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Anne Bonnie is here to talk about the theme for our next Hearsay Mainstage show, which is Exquisite Corpus, meaning stories about body parts in all forms. <laughs> Welcome, Anne. Thanks. It's good <laughs> to have all my parts here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you brought them all. You brought them well. So Anne, you have told many stories at Hearsay over the years. I, um. <laughs> I have, and I appreciate your help, too, because uh, you've helped me craft them and get better and better. Yeah, I really enjoy the process. Um, I, I kind of consider myself like a, like, well, I don't, I just feel like I'm a chef who puts my fingers deep in other people's stories. <laughs> I just, I really, yeah, that's not a perverse. Uh, <laughs> I was about to say, speaking of body parts. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let me get my fingers in your story. <laughs> I just, I mean, I have found, I've, I've, I think that all of us, this is our seventh year of hearsay, and I feel like all of the people who have been doing this for a long time have all really grown a lot as storytellers. Everyone had, was baseline talented, but everyone's just kicking ass and blowing me away at every show well it's so interesting as you prep a story and then you get up on stage and you tell it and you're like oh my god that didn't go near from a response standpoint that didn't go nearly as I thought it would and so just learning that is really like helpful and it's especially helpful to me because I speak for a living yeah oh yeah no I, I have found that there are some parts of stories where I'm I I think it's hilarious and I know that, you know, the general public does not always find what I think, like, what I think is <laughs> hilarious is not, that's not consensus. Um, so I'll be telling my story and the thing that I thought would not get, well, the thing that I thought would get a laugh does not get a laugh, but I have to keep going. Right. But in the back of my head, it's like, almost like when you're storytelling, you're in two different places. You are in your physical body and, uh, and also in your brain, mm -hmm. like, and 100% of both those things somehow because yeah. I will keep going with my story while in the back of my head I'm thinking wow I thought that was going to get a laugh <laughs> why didn't they like that that was funny yeah <laughs> and then I get to another thing that's just a throwaway sentence I'm like holy crap why are they laughing yeah. at that? I mean and then in hindsight it's like oh yeah I guess that was kind of funny <laughs> um yeah we are all I think terrible judges of our own stories sometimes well and that's part of the reason it's so great to have somebody on the outside look at it you know because it's your story you've probably been telling it for a long time just incidentally at parties and stuff and then somebody else gets their hands on it and just gives you a different perspective oh yeah, yeah no, I, love I, it. I always say that when you are given the gift of a microphone in your hand the expectations change yeah for what that story is going to be mm -hmm. so um so speaking of stories um and particularly why I wanted you to come here and talk to us about Exquisite Corpus. You have never told the story of when you competed in a bodybuilding contest. It's true, but I did tell a story about a penis, a, a show penis. So I did, I have told stories about, that is very about true. body parts. I just thought of that. 
<laughs> I could tell that one. Um, uh, yeah, that was the Moonlighting show from season six, in case anyone is interested in checking that one out. And I highly recommend you do. I believe that was one of my funniest <laughs> stories ever. My father was there. He was mortified. It was really fun to watch him. Um, but no, I haven't told a story about competing in the, in the show. Uh, was it only that one time? It was only that one time. Uh, it will only be that one time. Okay. Uh, it was an incredible experience. Um, I won the whole thing. Of course, I'll never do it again because I would never win again. <laughs> and uh, it just it went so well and was such a good experience. But it was a great learning experience, too. Yeah. Well, how do you know you wouldn't win again? I just can't count on it. So it's not worth trying. <laughs> like, quit while you're ahead. Yeah. Plus, I mean, the, the whole process. Well, so one of the interesting things was you get to us, you're like perfect weight as a regular human. You know, I got to 142, 145 pounds. That's a great, nice and lean, super healthy. But for the show, you get on stage in a little bikini. Mm-hmm. You're another 15 pounds less than that. Uh. So all the work you do beyond that is purely to look a certain way, mm-hmm. which creates a really interesting in cognitive dissonance because you're like I'm healthy now like I'm good but I've set this goal to look a certain way and there's no other purpose yeah and so while I support people who do it I just um and I have a lot of friends who do it very successfully I just once I got beyond that help that like healthy sustainable place I was like yeah this is this is for the wrong reason and it's really interesting too because you always think that when you hit that perfect weight and you have the thigh gap and you have the six-pack abs and everything like everything's gonna be perfect and I remember looking in the mirror on the day of the show going I'm still lonely my bank account's still empty like why isn't everything better now I look perfect I looked this is it right it was such an interesting experience to get there and realize this doesn't matter. Wow. Yeah. Huh. It was fascinating. Uh, so, uh, like, after, uh, well, do you think, uh, I was about to ask you two questions at the same time just now. I'll do one at a time. Um, do you think that if you hadn't won, you would have tried again? Probably not, because winning was never the point. Yeah. Um, getting in that tiny bikini. I remember getting the bikini even a month and a half before and being like, my ass is not going to fit into this thing. There is no way. And uh, so really the point was to have the experience to see what my body could do, to see what I could do to practice discipline and all that stuff. But the point was never to win. Um, so when I did, I was like, holy crap, this is awesome. This is why, again, I don't want to do it again because I have very high expectations now. <laughs> So you say like you were given the bathing suit. Does that like, is it like you had your own Mickey gold mill being like, here's your bathing suit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I went online. I did. I did have my own Mickey. Um, uh, I bought it online and it's, it's kind of like wedding dresses. Those things are expensive and they're, I mean, they're tiny and you're like, what am I paying for here? Um, But yeah, it was a big thing with my, I, I had to also take a walking class and a posing class. How about that? You put on these big Lexan stripper heels and learn how to walk and shake your ass and like, wow. Uh, and so it was a big deal when we all got our suits and we were all like, oh my God, I got blue. Oh my God, I got pink. It was like, yeah. So it was a thing. Yeah. So after it was over, did you celebrate by eating all the unhealthy foods? All in the one things. <laughs> yes. I um, went into the Grand Traverse Pie Company planning to eat a couple of bites of uh, butterscotch cream pie. I ate the whole freaking thing. 
Oh man, fish tacos have beer. Oh, it's delicious. <laughs> like best meal you've ever oh, had. Oh my God. <laughs> and everybody said, you feel terrible. I didn't feel terrible. I felt fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't have the discipline for that kind of, uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I consider myself healthy. I'm, I'm certainly, as I'm getting older, I'm widening. Um, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> as happens. Um, but yeah, I just, I mean... I I would say, like, I want to live like I'm living, mm-hmm. you know? And so, like, anything that requires being hungry, I can't. Okay, Karen, <laughs> I was never hungry. Oh. I ate seven cups of green vegetables every day. That is a bucket full, like, literally <laughs> a bucket. I was never hungry. I ate five times a day, seven cups of green vegetables. It's just a matter of eating the right food. Um, okay. And I ate the same thing. Every day yeah. for four months. Wow. Yeah, but I was never hungry. Well, In fact, I get most of the way through the green vegetables and, you know, lunch and dinner, three cups and four cups. And I was like, I just can't. I can't. I'd be out of breath and like, I can't do it. I can't make it. <laughs> yeah. And Mickey would be screaming in my ear, <laughs> you got to finish your vegetables. <laughs> I got to say, I mean, it, they are filling. Brussels sprouts especially. Yeah. I actually once got a phone call from a friend who wanted to do, like, try dabbling our toes in a friends with benefits situation um he texted me and i was like i can't i just ate a bag of brussels sprouts <laughs> i'm <laughs> sorry i can't sleep with you i've just had brussels sprouts i felt so unsexy i was like i was so full and gross this and full of vegetables <laughs> hey we've been friends for about a year and a half what a fuck like how does that happen but it's cool that's a totally different show totally different show <laughs> that's the one night stand show <laughs> right Stay tuned for season eight. (laughs) All right. A theme emerges. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So, you know, we all have our standard issue illnesses, um, you know, aside from, you know, Brussels sprout bloating. Um, (laughs) So, like, you know, colds and flus and allergies. um, Like, what are some of the weirdest ailments you've had? You know, I haven't. I've had two. I had to think hard when I saw this question in the prep. I was like... I've really been lucky when it comes to health, knock on wood. Um, One time when I was about 11, we lived overseas. And I think we got back from Jordan or Egypt or somewhere. Because when you live overseas, you don't go to Disneyland for vacation. You go to Jordan because it's closer. Mm -hmm. And I was just like severely fatigued. And I was a spazzy kid. So this was like a big I'm still a spazzy kid, but um, this was a big difference. And so I I went to the doctor five and six times. They took blood, you know, all the time. They never figured out what it was. And uh, and I got better. Hmm. And then I had the same thing for about a month, not five or six years ago with uh, vertigo, where all of a sudden I would just get super dizzy and almost fall over. Um, I have been there. I hate it. Did you do the Epley procedure? I didn't do a damn thing. I didn't go to a doctor. I figured I'd just ignore it for a while and see what happened. And after a month or so, it just kind of went away. Yeah. Now, the the Epley procedure is uh, they grab you by the head. Like, they turn your head sideways (laughs) and grab you by the head and then slowly slowly lower you because they're basically, like, pushing you into the dizziness to get you out of it because it's usually like crystals in the ears that causes it. And so like, yeah, and I, I had, I've had bouts of vertigo many, many times, but this was the first time I've ever actually like had a medical appointment to do something about it. And pardon my language, everybody, but I like the whole time she was lowering me and I had my hands on her hands. Like I was going to rip them off and I was just like, fuck, 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 fuck. It's terrifying. But then it was, but then when she lifted me back up, it was gone. And this is a regular (laughs) doctor. Uh, it was an ENT. 
Okay, yeah, like uh, a yeah, MD, regular. not like the witch doctor or something. No, no, it wasn't like my next door neighbor who, you yeah. know, like. Here, let me pull on your head. That's weird. Yeah. And it just, like, gone? And it just went away. It was horrible, though. I mean, like, it's it's one of those things where it's like the, the treatment is really unpleasant, but you have to do it. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Ugh. I'm out. Um, Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I, uh. As far as weird illnesses go, I mean, I, I Bell's palsy, I don't think that's like a weird illness necessarily, but it just like it comes on from nowhere and they don't really they're not really sure what causes it. And I woke up with that one day. Um, I just like the, throughout the day, I kept looking at my uh, at my face in the mirror and I'm like, something's like like one of my eyes look droopy. But it all started actually it started the night before where I was like, there's something not quite right because I just like I couldn't. I just felt wrong like my eye itched and I was just feeling really off and weird and I and so I decided I wanted to stress eat potato chips but I couldn't taste the salt on the potato chips oh that's even weirder <laughs> yeah taste alterations is part of it huh. and uh, so then I was like well I'm just gonna go to bed but one of my eyes kept opening it wouldn't stay closed <laughs> you're like one of those dolls oh my god uh, yeah i'm like fat baby <laughs> i still haven't seen that picture oh it yeah it was short-lived on on instagram yeah <laughs> i will show you when okay. we're uh, right, cool. when we've closed up the microphones here um <laughs> but yeah our yeah no and so like, i just like so the next day i was like i felt like one of my eyes looked droopy and like one of my lip like on the same side of my face that it looked droopy and uh and i kept looking and looking and looking but it was so mild that like nobody else could see it except for my mom. I took a selfie and she's like, yeah, something's not right. Your face is wrong. <laughs> but like, unfortunately I had, I was on my way to like go meet someone in New York for a date, like right after that. And, uh, and so I like, <laughs> I had gotten my eyebrows, you know, done. Uh, and, uh, and I kept telling them, I'm like, they're not even like there's there's something uh, wrong like my eyebrows aren't even, but it was actually my face was not even. Oh, wow. <laughs> so does it only um, affect your face? Yeah, yeah. It's just like you get like a like it's like a partial paralysis where half your face gets paralyzed. And the craziest thing was that I woke up with it like the day after the Cubs won the World Series. And so my friend it's the Cubs. No, well my well, you know I'm a huge fan and my my friend was like you were so excited your face melted. <laughs> I just love that line so much. But yeah, no, and I went on some medication and just went right away. Huh. Yeah. And it just randomly comes back every once in a while or that no, was it? Well, just one I, time. I, I I obsessively Google <laughs> like yeah. the recurrence rates and you know, nothing has changed since the first time I Googled it, but I just <laughs> in case new science has decided, no, now you're gonna get it every other day. But no, it's it's rare to get it more than once. So oh. I hope that's true. But actually here's the thing fun fact about me so well fun fact about bell's palsy and then about me um the way they test it because it's kind of mimics the uh um symptoms of a stroke and so when you go to the doctor they have to rule out like which one is it you yeah, know and right. so there, there's one thing that gives it away that it's bell's palsy if you try to hold your breath you can't do it because you keep blowing air out of the one side, the the parallels, par bleh, paralyzed side of your face. I think it's happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever see me, like if I'm out somewhere and you see me do this, it's because I'm checking to see if I have Bill's palsy <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> Just checking. I'm good. Well, it was, it was it was scary. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean honestly, like I just. Uh, I haven't thrown up since I was 22 years old. Oh, wow. No, that's a lie. 20. Since I was 20. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm like, now, then for those of you in the listening audience who don't know me, that is 26 years ago. <laughs> so I'm not a barfer. And so I'm afraid of it now. 
know? Yeah, barfing is very unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, bodies are gross. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's very true. They're rude and they're gross. <laughs> the noises <laughs> and the liquids. Yeah. Right. So do you ever self-diagnose by Dr. Google? I've only... Okay, I've done it more than once, but I only did it one time seriously. I ate a bad tomato. I knew as I was eating it, I'm like, this is not right. This is not going to end well. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I swore I was dying. And I thought I had an appendicitis. I thought I had a brain tumor. I thought it was just a bad tomato. It was just some food poisoning. But I, that was terrible. So did you Google tomato death? No, because I hadn't made the tomato <laughs> connection yet. Uh, I just started Googling mm-hmm. symptoms and oh boy. Gotcha. I had a lot of things. Yeah. Huh. So. But at midnight also, your brain's going, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, well, the last time I died. Last time I died. Last <laughs> one time I died. <laughs> Can you please edit that out of the thing? <laughs> I don't know. That was pretty funny. Woo. <laughs> you have to keep that. <laughs> okay. So the last time I barfed, um, it was actually food poisoning. Um it was bad shrimp. And like you said, Oof. like I knew right away, like I took one bite of the shrimp fried rice and I was like, this is not good. Mm. And I stopped eating it and got ordered a pizza instead. And then uh, woke up in the middle of the night and, and threw up. But my favorite part of the story is that, um, I was actually having a dream that Murphy Brown was interviewing me about stomach aches because <laughs> ah! <laughs> that show was popular at the time. I love it. I love it when your your body starts to or your brain starts to incorporate life into your dream. Right. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Now oh, as we get funny. older, it's horrible. It's, uh, but I think oh. bodies are just Karen. My arms aren't long enough anymore. <laughs> They're I, shrinking? I'm, I'm doing... No, <laughs> oh. I need them to be longer so I can see things. Yeah. Oh, my eyes are so bad. Oh, man. Yeah. No, actually, I used to be... I used to wear glasses when I was a kid. I was cross-eyed. And then really? It, and then it fixed itself. Although, I remember my science teacher in freshman year of high school told me that um, if you're born cross-eyed then and they fix themselves, they just keep going until they're pointing in opposite directions. Oh, dear. <laughs> Oh, you look great. Thank you. Well, <laughs> apparently that's not true. Okay, good. <laughs> I don't know if she was messing with us or if she was really just a science teacher who didn't know science. <laughs> <laughs> I read on the internet. You know, everything on the internet is true. Uh, except it was 1986. That's true. There was so. no internet back then. <laughs> what did if we she do had said that, if she had said that, she would have been, I would, you know, I would like to go back and talk to her. <laughs> yeah, right. She knew more than we did. She realized. knew everything. <laughs> Oh, man. Have you ever heard of the TV show Manimal? No. No. AJ, have you heard of Manimal? It's from 1983, and it was only on for like eight seasons, or eight episodes, excuse me. Um, So I'm not making this up. This is the plot line of the story, of the show. <laughs> it's about a wealthy doctor who fights crime by morphing into different animals. <laughs> Wonder twin powers activate. <laughs> Wasn't one of those an animal guy? There's an I, animal and a water person. I don't know. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I don't Cartoons know. Cartoons in the 70s. But <laughs> yeah. No, this was like a light. I mean, this was a real guy. It was, I, I, I looked up the cast. There's no one I've ever heard of. Um, so in 2011, TV Guide named it one of the worst shows of all time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you might assume that like eight episodes, you assume, okay, that's a terrible TV show. But, you know, let's keep in mind that Freaks and Geeks was canceled after 12 episodes. And that was the greatest show of all time. Um, but yeah, no. And. To be clear, I'm not arguing that Manimal was a great show. It was terrible. Oh, okay. I've never seen it. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, but I did watch it. I was 12. And so, okay, like it, for an example of like this guy morphing into 
an animal. Are you looking it up over there? (laughs) (laughs) AJ's in the background cracking up. (laughs) So the 90-minute pilot is that some thieves have hatched a plan to hijack a shipment of nerve gas, of course. So the detective goes to a doctor who's trained in an African technique that allows him to transform into different animals and solve the crime. And he, he changed into a panther a lot. Well, because panthers are bitching. <laughs> right? But, you know, I mean, I think, like, one of the biggest criticisms... <laughs> oh, goodness, we've lost AJ forever. <laughs> he found it on YouTube. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, I think everyone should Google it. It's It was fantastic. I'm going to as it, soon as I get home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and what, one of the best things about this show is that, you know, like, many of these shows about superheroes or whatever, like, you know, all of a sudden he would change into an animal and then have no evidence that he was ever clothed. And then when he changed uh, back into human form, <laughs> he's clothed again. <laughs> like, that was a good thing about Terminator is they, when they landed, they were naked. I was yeah. like, okay, good. That's real. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so if you could be any animal, what would you be in? And would you use that power for good, evil crime fighting? <laughs> oh God, I don't know what animal I would be. I'd probably be a panther. I mean, now that we're talking about it, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I used to work with birds of prey and eagles and hawks are really cool. I think you did also ch- change into a hawk sometimes. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, big cats are pretty cool. Big whales would be cool because you just don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, you know, I just don't care. I'm a giant whale. What are you going to do? <laughs> so you would just do it for the experience? Like, I like, think so. Yeah, not, yeah. To, not I, to fight crime. No, I think, I, or a sloth. <laughs> like, they don't care. Or a koala bear. They have no stress, yeah. no job. I need eucalyptus and I'm good. Wave <laughs> right. at the tourists. That sounds like a stress-free existence. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't really decided what I would want to be. Yeah. Something where they bring me my food maybe though. I think I so, want to be like manimal though because I would want to change. Yeah. I could get bored being a sloth. Right. I'd want to move fast. I'm like, <laughs> let's switch to cheetah. Or be like, you know, a lemur up until that point. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Like, cool, now I'm something else. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, like, I mean, I, I have this suet feeder outside my kitchen window, and I have woodpeckers there all the time, yeah. and, and they're so much fun to watch, but they really work hard for their food. And <laughs> but, I bet I mean, they have a headache most of the time. Yeah, exactly. You imagine banging your nose on a tree all day? Yeah. So, Ow. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, like, to be a domesticated pet sounds pretty boring, but at the same time, you sleep until someone says, hey, there's food. And then they pet you. <laughs> and then they pet and you. rub your belly and give you toys, <laughs> and then you rip the squeaker out, and they give you another one. Right. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of big plans for my future. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you find that African doctor that can turn you into an animal. Exactly. <laughs> that, that African technique that allows me to shape shift. Yes. <laughs> and if you ever do learn that yourself please come back to our podcast and i'll let you yeah tell well, us all about it exactly <laughs> so yeah there's also um bionic i think you know the bionic man and bionic woman was and from wolverine before, yeah. where they got like superpowers <laughs> now that's cool yeah yeah i think i'd probably be more into superpowers than mm-hmm. just being an animal for being an animal's sake yeah also i mean yeah like i mean panthers don't have thumbs so like i mean kind of but not really like how how, how you, would you text yeah well <laughs> How do you solve crime if you don't have a How do you thumb? hitchhike without a thumb? <laughs> no, but like Wolverine, I was thinking about that. Having, well, he's got the healing power anyway, but then having adamantium bones and like claws and stuff, that would be awesome. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, hopefully in our lifetime we can... <laughs> I'm not going to hold my breath. No. <laughs> they could just make my arms longer, you know, like plastic man. Just then so I won't need see. reading glasses. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I was at uh, 
Macy's recently with a coupon with that had all the exclusions on the back. And the woman, the clerk, said something about like, oh, I think this is one of the exclusions on the back. And I said, well, if I can't make it bigger with my yeah. fingers, I don't know what it says. <laughs> you find so. yourself doing that, trying to zoom into like old school photographs? Like, yeah. it's not working. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I'm so glad you were able to join us today. Oh, this was awesome. Yeah. And uh, yeah, everyone go check out Anne's podcast and her book. And you also have a website, correct? Yeah. AnneBonnie.com. Yeah. Check her out. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and thank you to our photography sponsor, Harp Star. And another thank you to our in-studio guest, Ann Bonnie. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in January 2020 when our theme is Exquisite Corpus. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.